technology could step in and help us with memorizing things. And we could see how potentially some of it could be very positive. It, of course, then inevitably will also learn things about us. And the question, the scary part of sort of my answer is, who is going to own that information? That's Professor Ekaterina Hertog, my guest on this episode of Lives of Tomorrow. My name is Carla Bazashi, and I'm the CEO of WGSN, the world's leading consumer insight and trend forecasting company. In this podcast, we focus on what our lives will look like in the future, our lives of tomorrow, and how all the trends and forecasts that we predict at WGSN will shape the way that we live our lives. Now, new research says AI will, within a decade, save us up to 40% of the time we spend on household tasks. Now, I don't know about you, but this headline hooked me in and I was really curious to find out more. Who better to satisfy my appetite for information on this one than the lead researcher from the study? So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Professor Ekaterina Hertog, who joins us today to find out more about this study how it's going to affect us and the motivations behind it. Ekaterina, over to you. Please introduce yourself to our listeners. Thanks a lot for this very warm welcome, Carla. And as you said, my name is Ekaterina Hertog. I am an associate professor in AI and society at Oxford University, and I'm shared between two institutions, Oxford Internet Institute and Institute of Ethics and AI in Oxford. So I got a sort of philosopher hat on and a sociologist hat on and can switch between the two. When you say you're shared, it's like some of them get half of your brain and the others get the other half of your, <laughs> half of your brain. <laughs> I do try to connect the two halves as much as I can, bringing in the kind of expertise and the conversations that I hear from one setting to the other across the board. But yes. <laughs> Amazing. Now, I ask this question to all my guests. What was a pivotal moment or maybe a person in your career that's had the most impact on getting you to where you are today? That's a great question. And I mean, given that I'm interested in domestic workloads, I, I, I think I have to recognize my husband, who is great at you know, sharing domestic work equally and was pivotal in freeing up enough time for me to be able to continue with my career while you know we had two children and were kind of raising it and tearing our house, our hair out and so on. So there is the domestic side of things. In terms of the career-wise, I have to say I've been quite lucky uh, meeting a number of um, excellent people. I think specifically in terms of thinking about technology and kind of really bringing my thinking together uh, on, on these two topics, my initial interest in domestic division of labor, how we share domestic tasks, what that means to our lives, and then kind of bring the technological insight and what, how technologies might change this. I would say it's my current collaborator, Professor Willi Lechton-Virta, who is based at the Oxford Internet, Internet Institute as well as me and has been working for years on gig economy, sort of technology and labor kind of topics. Okay, amazing. I think you're the first guest who's ever said their husband. So how nice is that? That's lovely. <laughs> okay, before we get into the q and I'm going to give you something to think about while we're discussing. It's another question. It's one that um, I think my very first guest on this podcast suggested. Don't have to answer it now. We'll come back to it right at the end. And that question is, when was the last time that you learned something new? 
So maybe something's had an impact on the way that you live your life or see the world, but something new recently. We'll come back to it. Yeah. Okay. So let's get into the nitty gritty now. I guess the fundamental question is how is AI or how are robots going to save us time on domestic tasks in 2033? Great question. So some of it is happening already. I would like to kind of highlight the fact that it's a continuum, right? We've already, we've been since more than 100 years, we've been bringing our technological breakthroughs in some ways that they've been transforming our working lives, but also our domestic lives. And the sort of most, we go most far back, you know, many in the global north and the richer countries, we have running water, we have electricity into our in our homes. That's transforms the kind of labor we have to do. We don't have to carry water from the wells. That transforms how we spend our time at homes because there's light late into the night. More recently, in sort of around the 20th century, there was a big sort of breakthrough in a variety of gadgets like washing machines, dishwashers, tumble dryers. They directly replace some types of labor. Like if a washing machine is cleaning my clothes and then I can put them in a tumble dryer rather than spending time hanging them on the pegs. We're now sort of entering this new time uh, with with new technologies emerging, which can help us not only with directly replacing our labor, like the past technologies we're doing, but um, that can also augment our labor or perhaps work along alongside us. When in some, for example, to give you one example, that is we all need to do shopping, especially if we think about household labor, there's grocery shopping, we'll need to cook to feed our families somehow. And in principle, there is an existing patent for something that's called um, anticipatory shopping. And that is a technology that will kind of guess what we would like to buy and send it on our doorstop without us having to go and shop. I mean, on the one hand, it's a little bit maybe a scary thought. If it's very repetitive shopping, I could kind of see how I could live with that. But it's interesting because you say it's a scary thought. And then I'm just thinking, so I have a um, a weekly Ocado shopping slot set up. And it pre-books it for me four weeks in advance and it fills my trolley for me, my virtual trolley for me with the things that I have ordered. Now, it's not perfect and different times of the year you want different things, but it learns over time. And I've just become really used to it. I I totally take that for granted now that when I log on, I don't actually, I don't need to log on to book my slot. The computer's done it for me. And if I forget to do anything, food and things are going to arrive on a Thursday evening for me, ahead of the weekend. I don't even have to think about it. And it's just, it's kind of happened. And that's actually, if, I don't know, 10 years ago, you told me that would be the fact. I'd have thought that was astonishing, but it's just normal now. Something that's becoming. So this is replacing part of our labor that's often referred to as the mental load, that the effort that we have to keep to remember that. Think a couple of days ahead and sometimes um, a couple of you know weeks or even months ahead, like making sure children have the appropriately sized clothes for appropriate seasons or ourselves don't, don't run out of the toilet paper. I remember when I first started living alone, that was a thing. <laughs> it took a little bit of getting used to. So technology could step in and help us with memorizing things and we could see how potentially some of it could be very positive. It, of course, then inevitably will also learn things about us. And the question, the scary part of sort of my answer is, 
who is going to own that information? So if, if just as, you know, my computer knows things about me, but it just sits on it. And at the end of its lifespan, I'm going to destroy a hard drive and all that knowledge will disappear. That's not very problematic, I'd imagine. Yeah, because one of the questions I wanted to ask you was how much data are we going to need to give up yeah. to enable this to happen? And But before I even ask that, I'm now thinking, I've just told you about something that happens to me. That company, the online grocery shopping brand that I have chosen to use, has knows all sorts of things about me <laughs> and my family as a consequence. It probably knows when we're dieting or when we're celebrating and all of those kind of things. And I have freely given up that information because it makes my life easier at the moment. Yep. So this is the interesting thing about those domestic robots. So there is there is two interesting aspects of it. One is just as you're saying, how much information do we have to give up? That in some ways that should depend on a task. Like a vacuum cleaning robot really shouldn't need to know too much about us. It just should go around and suck the rubbish out from the up from the floor. On the other hand, anything like a cooking or shopping, I mean algorithm or a cooking robot would probably need to know more. A cooking robot would probably need to know health conditions, allergies, you know, food intolerances, and probably everyone's preferences. And from that kind of information, they probably can infer possibly even the number of household members, some certain food quirks will be associated with certain age groups. For example, if I'm cooking a lot of low salt purees, it is possible there's some kind of very young child involved in the household. And then I think, I don't think the cooking robot could work well if it doesn't know that information, because what if it cooks, you know, something with nuts for a nut allergic person and so on. But then it raises all sorts of questions. And we have this, I think there is where we want to come in and we want to have a conversation now as a public and bring in policymakers to think about it now before that future, you know, before 2033, is how do we want it to be? Do we want to put some guardrails on this technology to say, well, it's fine for you to know it, but maybe keep it in my household. Don't give that inf- Don't sell that information away to my health insurer, for example, that I'm eating a lot of fatty foods and potentially gaining weight. Was there anything in there looking 10 years ahead that you were surprised about in terms of coming away from the giving up all this information, but actually the things that will be automated? I think it's really useful the way you've currently sort of set it. Washing machines are technology enabling Mm -hmm. us to do things quickly. But when you look forward, are there new things coming down the line that you think the average person is just not aware of at the moment? So in those predictions, one thing which we broadly anticipated was that the experts thought that housework kind of task, which is cooking, cleaning, laundry, and so on, they thought was generally more automatable than care sort of tasks, uh, tasks that involve um, ferrying around children or helping children with homework or playing, reading to children and so on. So those tasks were seen as less automatable. But what surprised me is that experts felt that education, out of all the care kind of tasks, they thought education should be quite automatable. And I was wondering, why is that? And is it because of the way we are conceiving of education? And if if that's the case, is it the right way? Is it the sort of way think about education as rope learning is quite a more repetitive thing rather than opening up our minds? Or is it that we think that we soon will be able to have quite enriching conversations with with our robots and computers and so on? Now, that is fascinating. Both my parents are teachers. 
So, I mean, both retired now, but both were teachers. So I grew up in a household where everyone was going to school because my parents were going to school as well because they were teaching as well as me and my brother and sister. And I could imagine that would be a lively debate if I were to bring that up, that teaching could be automated. I think they would disagree vehemently on that in terms of the kind of care and nurturing and mentorship that teachers bring. But yes, I mean, if it's learning to do your times tables, if people will even need to do their times tables in the future, then I imagine that quite a bit back could be automated So that's really interesting. Can we just talk a little bit about, I guess, traditional roles and how they have evolved, but how they could evolve even more in the future? So let's look back as we are to look forward where maybe it was more traditional that the woman would be at home and women have been liberated because tasks have been automated and giving them the ability to go out to work. And again, this is looking kind of many years past, but do you see therefore this also having an impact on I guess, gender stereotypes and what's thought of as, you know, the the man and the woman's part to play in a traditional household. So, yes, I think these technologies, if they do save that amount of time, indeed, they have the potential to change the gender dynamics in the household. If we look broadly at my and other people's research in on domestic division of labor, there's a lot of evidence that domestic work, housework and care work are not shared equally at all anywhere in the world. Women do more of it everywhere, even in countries like Nordic, Sweden, Finland, that we always imagine in the most egalitarian of all. The gap between men and women is smaller. But there is still a gap. But there is still a gap. And of course, if we think of it purely mechanically, if these technologies are taking over some of our jobs, but not transforming the nature of the task, then we can imagine that women also stand to benefit most because they are the ones who are doing more of it. So more of their time should be saved. So if that transpired, we should see the shrinking of the gap, at least in absolute numbers, not 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 relatively. So everyone will have 40% of their time, for example, cut. Uh, but in absolute hours for women, that 40% will free up, say, an hour a day. And for men, maybe over 30 or only 30 minutes, depending on their investment. At the same time, as we saw with all technologies before, including washing machines or bringing electricity into the homes, um, having these technologies also changes the nature of the tasks. And this is something that's much harder to predict and um, that we didn't ask our experts to imagine because I think it's just, it is quite hard. Um, To give one example from the past, when we had washing machines introduced, um, they did take over the laundry kind of labor, but they also raised our hygiene standards. So people started washing a lot more. So the jobs that happen around it where, you know, we're sorting the washing, we're buying the appropriate laundry detergents, colors, sort them by colors, by kind of fabric and so on. That started taking more time because uh, people were just doing more of it. They were now washing every day or every second day, whereas before maybe it would be a, a weekly kind of effort. So what does that mean? How clean is stuff going to be in the future then if it gets even more? <laughs> more advanced and then we'll find new things to do which mean we still have a human interaction so there is again where we could we could think about uh, where technologies are going to transform by themselves or is it does it need also some of better sort of understanding and perceptions about gender inequality and so on because i could imagine right now the norm is in families for example households with more than one person we tend to cook one dinner right but if there's this lovely cooking robot perhaps we're cooking because everyone could have their own meal. But that's going to create other tasks around it, potentially. So that could be an equivalent of the washing machine and the rise of cleanliness. 
I hadn't even thought about it that way. So we'll replace some of these domestic tasks, but actually there'll be more domestic tasks because we're going to get even choosier and even pickier and even more demanding because technology is filling the space where we just would have done something because we had a finite amount of space. Now we've got more, but we're going to fill it still with things that are associated with those domestic tasks. And of course, having the robots, as again, I, I imagine many of us have direct experience with having those technologies, someone has to manage them. So like if my if my child's iPad's malfunctioning or the phone's broken, someone's got to, you know, sort this out and uh, manage the Wi-Fi connections and so on. So this is uh, some people call this digital housekeeping when you're managing your digital devices in the home. And it's emerging as a new type of domestic labor, which we didn't have before, but because we didn't have so many or any at all digital devices in the home. So I could imagine that this in the future, this is going to be a much more serious kind of effort. And the question is, who is going to do it? There was a job ad that went viral. I think it was in the US, but I'm not going to get the details completely correct here. But it was a high net worth individual and they were advertising for somebody to basically look after all the technology in their home. And that included their children's iPads and things like that. Because if you've got that much money, the number of devices you've got does require full-time staff to keep it all functioning and working properly. Yep. And make sure that if you have a really large home, making sure that in every room you got a good Wi-Fi connection. That by itself is not necessarily automatically happening. So can you kind of paint a picture of the future about all the devices that we are going to have in our homes come 2030? That is pushing me. And as again, you, you probably hear, <laughs> it's this academic, uh, academic sort of wish to hedge one's bets. Because of course, this automation can go very broadly speaking, as we can see now, is emerging in two different ways. One is that we're bringing these new devices. And you know, before we had maybe a robotic vacuum cleaner, but now exceedingly so my dishwasher and my oven want to talk to me. And apparently they're fridges, which are able to order milk when they feel they're running out of milk and things like that. So these are... These are devices that are coming into our homes and are trying to manage some of the domestic tasks. Uh, smart locks uh, that you could remotely open if you need like a plumber to come in and you're not making it on time and cameras who can watch that the plumber, what the plumber is doing. On the other hand, the, there is an alternative model that is also sort of pushing for, for a possibility. And that is where certain domestic tasks don't have to happen in the home. For example, imagine laundry. I could just throw all my dirty laundry into one big basket, put it outside my door, and there could be a human courier or a drone picking it all up, bringing it into a local factory-like setting where everyone's washing is brought in. And then there's huge economies of scale where this can all be cleaned up, sorted, and then a drone or a human courier or some other kind of way is bringing it back to me. In that case, so if this sort of transformation happens, the homes won't change very much, but we would expect the outside the home, the sort of local infrastructure with the little drones or little delivery vehicles. I don't know if you've seen them. They're increasingly appearing on the streets, yeah. sort of ferrying our stuff around and bringing things back. But I, I can imagine that then would change your homes because then you don't need the space for your washing machine and your tumble dryer and things like that. So it does have an impact outside of just what you're doing. It's how you utilize that space. And actually, if all your dirty washing is somewhere else, then you don't need the laundry baskets and things like that. So what would you put in those spaces? Or does it enable us in an increasingly overcrowded world to have smaller living spaces, which 
are going to be needed in certain cities where there's just too many people. So it's, it is, you kind of start picking at this and you can go down the whole rabbit warren of the implications of this technology, which I find so interesting. Right, we're going to come back to this in a minute, but I want to get to know you as an individual a little better. So I've got some reoccurring questions that I ask all my guests. Very quick fire, don't overthink them. The first one is, why do you work? For me, it's a simple answer. I quite enjoy doing what I'm doing. So I'm an academic and the best parts of my job is I just get interested in something is how technology is influencing our domestic life or before that, how do people find marriage partners? This was one of my mar- of my research projects. And I just get to read about it and think about it and eventually think of how I could add to the existing knowledge and perhaps run a survey or find out new information some other way. Now, I know we're here to talk about AI and automation. I really want to come back to that survey. I mean, I want to know how people find their future partners. We're going to come back to that. Right. Next question. Do you have a sense of purpose in your work? I do. I I do hope that through my little additions to our general knowledge and understanding of social life, we could start addressing some of the sort of bigger issues like in, in the current project, persistent gender inequalities in the home, but also sort of my general concern and anxiety about the slow attrition and slow loss of privacy in, in, in the domestic sphere, which is, you know, our homes. Okay. And do you have a sense of purpose in your life? That's a really big question. I think as I get older, my sense of, I do have a sense of purpose in my life, but I, uh, when I was eight years old, I was kind of imagining breakthrough inventions. And um, I think I have a diary where I was writing how I'm going to get the Nobel Prize. I don't have that sense of purpose anymore. (laughs) And I don't imagine that either. It's incredibly banal, but just hoping to be a good person and add a little bit of good rather than take out. You don't know that the Nobel Prize isn't going to happen at some stage in the future. (laughs) I'm not that ambitious at this point anymore, but I'd be I'd be happy with adding a little bit of good. Though, of course, if someone shows up with a novel prize, I'm not gonna say <laughs> you're not no. going to say no. You're not going to say no. Fair enough. When are you the most creative? Um, I've gotten again increasingly more attuned to my circadian rhythm, so it's the mornings. I really try to keep my mornings subject to family limitations and all the care work I need to do to get people fed and into schools. But once that's is out of the way, I think it's the mornings where I'm the most creative and I get the most of sort of my brain's best firing. Which means if your predictions come true, you're going to have even more time in the mornings come 2033 because all of that stuff will be automated and someone else will be making sure everyone's got breakfast and bundled off to school. Wow. (laughs) And I could uh, free up some time for more work. (laughs) Exactly. What makes you happy? Different things. I am happy when the work is going well, when I feel that I can really, I mean, as everybody's work, my work has good parts, which I really enjoy, like interacting with the students, having conversations with colleagues, interesting conversations with colleagues, and uh, you know, just sitting and reading things about something I'm really interested about or writing about it. It also has like everybody's job. There's some bits where you know we're constantly interrupted. These bits make me less happy, but but they're okay proportionately. It's 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 all right. I have it spending time with my children. <laughs> Yes, especially when we're not 
fighting about what they're going to eat and that I cooked again something that they don't like and uh, how could I put the onion into this whatever dish. Where is that cooking robot which will produce separate meals? That would really transform my life. But we have, you know, just weekends where we're more relaxed and watching my children's football is actually quite amazing. I spent until a couple of years back, I thought football is just not my thing. Many people enjoy it. This I couldn't imagine myself enjoying it. Now I'm jumping up and down on the sidelines. Are you? We were watching um, my stepson play football and his elder brother was umpiring a couple of weekends ago and it was a silent supporting. So no one was allowed to make any noise. It was so weird. Very strange. I didn't enjoy that so much. I, I want to be able to shout along a little bit. It is true, but we were clapping. I clapped my hands blue on that. We, we were doing the silent weekend as well. I, th- I, th- <laughs> I think I could get a lot of jumping in. So hopefully I was noticed enough. <laughs> when are you offline? Uh, I probably, I wish I were better about it. I am definitely offline when I, we've planned things to do as a family. So that is like when I'm watching my, my kids playing football, uh, my phone's not present. Uh, when we're watching a movie together or just playing a board game together, again, I try to keep my phone away. Otherwise, I'm really struggling with taking it out of my life. I think I would I would like to, for example, not to keep my phone in my bedroom. But then what, what if that really important email is going to come in? You're a better woman than I am. I've usually downloaded the paper onto my phone before a football match so that if it gets really boring... <laughs> I can surreptitiously be looking at, I don't know, travel articles on the Times or something like that the weekend. When was the last time that you felt you were wasting your time and you only had yourself to blame for it? I think that that's quite a... I'm not such a good woman. (laughs) I'm aspiring. I have my ideal self and the real self. Quite often when I'm tired, I enjoy my life. But again, there is this tension in modern life between work and family responsibilities. We are expected to do a lot, especially I think many of us in our 40s, late 30s, early 50s. It's the prime time for career development, but also when children are quite young. So we have to do everything all of the time. So by the end of the day, I tend to be quite tired. And instead of just going to bed, I would be staring at my phone and I don't think it's very productive. And that happens many, many evenings, many more evenings uh, on a regular basis than I would like to. That's a really good segue back into the topic that you and I are discussing here, which is that trying to maximise certain periods of our life and the inequalities maybe because people can afford domestic help, which means that they can focus on things that other people might not be able to. And that's a really pertinent question for what's going on in the world right now when people's finances can be really, really limited and other people are still able to exist in the way they already have done and then the impact on people's careers and and then their earning power and that kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that comes out of it. So, I mean, you've talked already about some of the reasons why this was important to you and it looking at AI in the domestic sphere rather than just in the work sphere. But was it the kind of social inequality or was there an aspect of that that led into why you wanted to do this study? There is an aspect of that. And as we can imagine, many of the domestic technologies, even the ones we have now, like vacuum cleaners, washing machines, they're not free. And as they become mass market, they become cheaper and more affordable. Almost everyone has a washing machine now, but not at all everyone has a robotic vacuum cleaner. If we look at the existing survey data, we can see that richer households spend less time on domestic work than poorer ones. And I'd imagine that's because 
if you have more resources, you are able to outsource some of this work, either through hiring help or perhaps, you know, ordering meals or going out to restaurants, um, cutting out your cooking time and so on. Technologies potentially can amplify that. So if they come up, if some of these fancy cooking robots come up with big price tags, they are going to sort of build into those inequalities. And then, as you're saying, we could have a vicious cycle because if someone has spent a lot of time cooking and cleaning and so on, they have less time to do other things, to build up their careers, to continuously work, you know, nine to five rather than having to rush home earlier and so on. And that has consequences for lifelong earnings and for pensions and so on. So this is something that we also should keep an eye on. Some of these technologies, uh, for example, some support with elder care could potentially be provided by the state. There is some sort of stories emerging from, especially with East Asia, many East Asian countries are very concerned about the rapid graying of their societies. They're ahead of us, uh, of, of most other countries in, in terms of, you know, the proportion of elderly versus working age population who could take care of these older people. And the, the, there are a variety of things that the state sometimes can provide at, at no cost if they think that would help them to you know, maintain healthier lifestyles. Or this is something that should be a right for everyone that should enable an older person stay, you know, live independently longer rather than having to go to an elder care home, which we know is associated with worse health outcomes and so on. It's interesting because you could look further forward and think this will make everything more egalitarian because and, and maybe lessen some of those social inequalities, because if everybody has access to it, everybody should get that time back. But you're going to get yeah. this period where that technology is not at scale and therefore is much more expensive, which means it's only a very limited sphere of people who are going to be able to access it. So it's almost like if we can stick with it, it should get better for everyone. But it's whether you actually manage to jump that period or that period becomes condensed. Otherwise, you are going to end up with this big chasm between the haves and haves nots. There is, of course, some difference between the types of technologies because certain things like shopping will be addressed likely with algorithms and not with a, like an expensive new robots, right? We are all used to shopping apps that don't cost us anything. The cost is sort of built into our grocery shopping. And there, the one potential risk and the one potential inequality is that we'll have two types of technologies, one where we maybe pay more you know, some amount or, you know, substantial amount, the technology works for us. And another type where it's free, but we allow the company to collect all our information, our data, and, and use that for the infer inferences and sell it. You've talked about the fact that this study was about the domestic sphere versus how automation is changing people's working lives. But obviously, there is an implication here because there are lots of people who are hired in the domestic space, so cleaners, care workers, as an example. What kind of impact do you think it's going to have on them? Yeah, I mean, in the best scenario, if, again, this is regulated and we thought about how we wanted to do some of the jobs, like carer jobs, the robots could what in the field is called augmentation, robots could be the, play the supporting role. So the social worker would be able to, you know, spend more time interacting, doing what humans are best at, interacting, supporting, actually caring for other humans. And the more routine sort of physical kind of labor is done by, by the technology or with the help of technology. And so less time needs to be spent on it. So we, in a way, we keep the same job, we're shrinking the time that 
of more routine, repetitive tasks that perhaps technology is better suited to help with and amplifying the interactive side of things. Okay. Do you think that there is a danger with all of this also that it makes us lazy as human beings? So let's take the example, using cleaning as an example quite a lot here, that we know at the moment if we make a mess, then we need to clean it up. What happens if we get so used to technology cleaning up after us that then we're not scared of making a mess in a kind of wider context? Do you see that as a sort of negative impact of the advancements we're seeing at the moment and are going to see? I don't think I was very anxious about that particular aspect of it because, again, I think I um, think about the parallels with uh, laundry, right? We used to have to wash things by hand and probably people were more careful with their clothes and trying to make not make them dirty because that's a lot of work. And nowadays, when my kids get dirty every day and I, I don't think they, they don't even have a concept of thinking of trying to keep their clothes clean. And they sort of, that doesn't bother me at all. I think there is another aspect of it that maybe you're also, your question points towards though, is that domestic work is not purely work. We've been in this conversation drawing parallels with paid labor, with paid work. And th there are parallels, there are a lot of overlap with paid work in, in that it takes time, it takes effort, it's something that has to be done. We often don't have a choice about it. I can't choose not to cook. And there are limits of how, often, how much I can choose not to clean, for example. But there is another component to it, which paid work doesn't have necessarily. And this is an expression of care and love. And, you know, I may be spending time cooking, but if I'm cooking with my child alongside me and or we're having conversation as, as we're cooking, it takes an additional meaning and an additional value. And I think, I, if anything, I'm a bit, more worried or wondering what would that mean if now the robots took over and we lost those pockets of time. I mean, for me, one of my bugbears is ferrying children around. I mean, in the modern context, this is something that takes a lot of time. Children used to be much more independent. They would be walking around, getting themselves to school and back. These days, until a certain age, we have to. I think we legally cannot let, let them loose on the streets, really. And even later, the norms of, you know, watching over your child, supervising activities, arranging formal play dates, it's completely different from a couple of decades back. And sometimes when I'm, you know, I feel I've spent an hour on the road being a taxi driver, <laughs> I just feel I wish there was a self-driving car doing that. But on the other hand, oftentimes when we are on the road and there's no expectation and we're not trying to do anything and I'm off my phone, we can have a conversation with my teenage son. And it's a nice space to do it that is not easily replaced with, with, with other alternatives. So I think when we think about domestic work, we also need to think of that aspect of it and which bits of it we want to keep, even if they're not efficient, right? Even if it's not efficient to do them, but we still want to do them because they are bringing this caring aspect. Yeah, it's. I guess the old argument on that is, you know, you can throw money at a situation, but the care that goes into, I don't know, crafting something for somebody and making something and really thinking about it. And we, you know, we take love from that. And that's someone making you a meal still in this day and age. That feels amazing that someone has gone to that effort. And if everything is automated, we're going to, well, otherwise we're going to have to find new ways to express that love. Exactly. And some of philosophers, actually, in a recent event at the Ethics and AI Institute, were talking exactly about that. And they were talking about how, again, already we have 
calendars, which send us reminders. Oh, it's so-and-so's birthday today. And uh, that philosopher working on that topic was saying, well, on the one hand, it's incredibly convenient, right? I'm not going to offend people I don't want to offend and I care for by forgetting about their birthday, uh, which in our very busy lives just happens sometimes. But on the other hand, before when I congratulated someone with their birth, I remember the birthday or an anniversary, something important in their lives, they could safely think, wow, she really cares for me. She remembered my birthday and she was on time. Whereas nowadays, we don't have that confidence anymore. We can't ascribe that meaning because Facebook might have told me that this is so-and-so's birthday. That's how I know it's someone's birthday as it is. It's the Facebook reminder that saved saved my bacon on, on many instances, but you're totally right. I haven't had to go into the effort. I haven't had to. When I was growing up, we had a birthdays calendar and didn't have the Saturday, Sunday days of the week. It just had the numbers. And it was, you know, it was years and years old and people were added into this. It was this kind of historical archive of family and friends. And you don't need that in this day and age, but something is lost. Something is lost. You lose this expression of love and care. And I think we don't, I'm not terribly anxious about that. I'm more just thinking in some ways, I hope we can come up with new ways of expressing love and care. And um, as someone said, love is when you come into someone's home and you automatically know their Wi-Fi password <laughs> and your phone just connects. <laughs> I think it's a massive consideration. There are millions of people all over the world who've got some form of domestic help and therefore millions of people whose livelihoods depend on this type of work. It's, I guess the more, the more we're talking, it's really clear that there are lots of aspects that are going to require very careful consideration. And those of us, well, everybody in some way is going to be affected by it. And we're not taking that consideration at the moment. Now, we're talking today because of your research. It was your curious mind that led us here today. So I want to know if this was your very last paper and you were never going to do any research again, what legacy would you like this project to leave behind? I think as we were mentioning throughout this conversation, I would really like to push the domestic work more into, into the spotlight. It often, it's historically, you know, it's often been the case that domestic work is happens in the homes. It's not visible. It's often done by women or by those of lower status, uh, people with lower status, less power, or perhaps also less time, stressed and busy. And it just goes unnoticed. It doesn't count towards GDP calculations, for example. And yet it has a lot of value, as again emerged in this throughout this conversation. It, it means many things. It contributes to many sides. So I would like this to push domestic work more into the spotlight, and especially as we're thinking about the future and our future and lives with technologies. Now, all of this said and done, we've talked about this particular project, but looking into the future in general, are you more anxious or hopeful of what's in store for us in years to come? I'm torn. <laughs> I'm hopeful that human beings in some ways have been incredibly creative and have been devising things, not just domestic technologies, thinking about vaccines and all kinds of things that could make our lives better and enable us to have more choices and have not just more time, but more enjoyment and more happiness in our lives. I'm anxious that we don't miss this opportunity. And I think looking at the, our past record of interaction technology over the past couple of decades, you know, giving away our data, not thinking too much about because we just got used to it and oh, this was new and we didn't consider the risks. So I'm anxious at the sort of path we're set upon. And I hope we can 
change that and address that and take it more seriously. Okay. Let's get back to the question from the beginning. When was the last time you learned something new that has an impact on the way that you live your life? Uh, I think learning new things is basically one of the parts of my job. So it was quite recent as I've been working on this project. This project is kind of gives quite an overarching, it aims to give an overarching picture in the sort of thinking about domestic automation. But there's a particular, a colleague attracted my attention to a particular aspect of it. And that was the fact that particularly in care work, many of the currently existing technologies that help with care have this monitoring built into them. I mean, one of the things uh, that I wasn't thinking about, but I have the potential of watching my child's phone as as he moves about uh, the world. And uh, that's essentially, that's referred to as carevalence, which is a mix of care and surveillance. And I haven't been thinking about it. And it did transform the way I sort of think about this activity and what that means and that what that means about our connection, what that means about sort of growing up. And I'm still thinking about it. That's a very good answer. I'm now thinking when I do the same thing and whether that's a good or a bad thing. Carevalence. Care, sorry, say it again. Carevalence. Carevalence. Right? Uh, sometimes it's also talked about as monitoring, but I think carevalence really reflects that because we do mm. it for reasons of care. But it does have this surveillance component. And being a parent, in a way, once I start thinking more about it, it's an incredibly sort of anxious and insecure kind of role because children are young. We always, we end up being worried about them, that they'll be fine when they're not without us. But growing up is pushing for autonomy. And I started to think, well, these technologies are transforming that. And what does that mean for growing up? How does growing up going to be look uh, looking in the future? Is that healthy if we have a lot of this care valence coming in or are we going to are there going to be sort of quite strict sort of social norms emerging yeah when when do you learn independence when do you learn how to look after yourself if there's always somebody monitoring where you're going yeah my goodness we could we could talk about this topic for another hour i'm gonna have to have you back again so that we can now move on to that second topic and i didn't get to ask you about your previous study about how people end up meeting their life partners so ekaterina thank you so much it's been really interesting and i think you've brought up so many new topics out of out of this point about automation and how it's going to change our lives in the future and all the different kind of paths that go away from this so lots of food for thought for me and i'm sure for everyone who's listening to this now so thank you so much for sharing everything with us and definitely we will have to talk again especially when you've got the follow-up survey out so thank you great thank you and that's it for this episode ekaterina thank you for being such a brilliant guest you've really given us a glimpse into the future of ai and how it's going to impact all our lives even if we're not ready for it i think do let me know what you think about this podcast and the direction that you want it to be going in you can write to me at lives at wgsn.com to give me your input. And as always, stay tuned. A new episode will be out shortly about how we are all going to live our lives of tomorrow. I'm Carla Bazashi, CEO of WGSN. I'll see you next time.